couple of uh, quick updates. If you look at the back of your worship guide this morning, I, you'll notice there that there's a financial update in there as well as some important other dates. The financial update, we are doing well with our generosity towards um, our general fund, which is the operating budget of the church. With the exception of our mortgage, that is paid by sacrificial gifts in its entirety made by us above and beyond that. We call it the Journey of Faith offering, J-O-F offering, and you can see we're lagging in that uh, if you look carefully at those numbers. So if as the year's end approaches, if you're in a place where you would be willing to make an, an extra gift towards that fund, help erase that uh, lag, that would be uh, very, very helpful for us. And if you'd, if you'd make a matter of prayer for that, that God would meet our need, that would be um, much appreciated as well. One other need that I, I need to draw to your attention and... Uh, on, on Monday in staff meeting, we, we discussed the, the reality that this morning we were going to have to, this is on Monday, we we're going to have to cancel five of our children's classes because um, Stephanie essentially had run out of Band-Aids. And uh, we'd been Band-Aiding that for about um, six weeks to keep those classes together. Well, our new members class stepped up and 14 of our new members are immediately serving in our children's ministry. That erased, that erased all but two of those, um, two of those deficits, so two classes are canceled this morning and will remain canceled until uh, we have people step up to serve, and that is our um, 9 a.m. kindergarten class and our 1045 second grade. So if you are in a place where you could mentor some young kids and tell them the great stories of the faith, uh, you are needed, and we would welcome uh, your service in this matter, and these are things that we, uh, we need to pray about as a church family. So if you bow with me, we'll ready ourselves for the word and ask God's blessing on these matters too. Lord, if we could see and we were honest, um, we don't have the resources for a day unless you give them to us, not in our, not in our personal accounts, not here as a church family. We live by your gracious provision, and I know that's why Jesus told us to pray for our daily bread. And so we ask that. We ask, we ask that you would provide all of our needs to fully um, meet our responsibilities to pay down uh, this mortgage as quickly as possible and honor you by being debt-free. So God, move in our hearts and bring resources to us that we might be an increasingly generous people. Um, Lord, we, we pray too for the, the kids in these classes who today will not have teachers. Have mercy on them. We pray that you would fill those needs quickly with willing servants who, to whom the idea of investing in a handful of little ones sounds very, very important. And so I pray even as our heads are bowed that you might be at work, you might be meeting that need. God, we need your, your help with that. If left to our own devices, we will not serve. Um, please prompt us to serve as, as you would find pleasure in it. And Lord, as we open up your word this morning to something that is almost too familiar to us, may the beauty and the gravity of it all um, strengthen our faith and draw us near to you. We are thankful. Pray your mercy on us now through your word in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, let me begin by um, stepping back a bit. We're starting um, to teach through the gospel of Matthew. Uh, we started last week in the genealogy, which is how Matthew chooses to introduce us to Jesus, essentially by presenting his credentials a curious set of credentials. It starts out by saying, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it's interesting, um, Matt Woodley writes about this, and he points out that the first two words, essentially the word book and genealogy, that are, uh, start the Gospel of Matthew are the exact same words as the Greek title to the book of Genesis. Um, he says, God, Matthew wants us to do a Genesis double take. He says, 
the first creation, and now in Jesus, the new creation. In other words, the original creation, damaged, flawed, and broken, is being restored and transformed through Messiah Jesus. And what we saw last week as we looked at this long list of names that point us to Christ is that God is ruling sovereignly as he sets the stage for the coming of the Messiah. That's been his plan of rescue from the beginning when Adam and Eve strayed. From then on, God has been working out his sovereign plan to restore and transform our broken world. We saw that evil cannot stop him. He redeems it. He chooses the unlikeliest of instruments, women of questionable reputation, and a long list of nobodies. He likes to use people like you and me. People like you and me who are useful to bring Christ to the world. Matt Woodley again writes, he says, I can still remember sitting in my suburban living room and reading the first line from Tolkien's um, novel, The Hobbit. It goes like this. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. He says, ten words, and the novel and the story hooked me. Psychologists, he says, refer to this process as, as narrative transport, or the capacity for a good story to grab us and move us. What is a hobbit, I wondered. And why does he live in the ground? Will he leave his hole? If so, what surprises, dangers, and delights will he encounter? And as I entered Bilbo Baggins' journey, he says, I wondered, what adventures will befall me? He says, in a, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. Yes, a great fiction tale. Now, he says, hear a better story. One day, in a hole in the Milky Way, called Planet Earth, among an odd group of people, Jesus the Messiah came to his people. It's a true story that reads like fiction. What adventures, dangers, and delights will Jesus encounter? And if we follow him, what adventures shall befall us? Where will this gospel of mercy lead us? He says, hold on. We're in for the tale and the adventure of our life. So, that's what waits for us in the Gospel of Matthew. Imagine that the story starts like this. A friend calls you, and you can tell that he's upset. And he says, uh, meet me at the coffee shop. We need to talk. So you go to the coffee shop, and he shows up, and he's visibly shaken. And he tells you that his fiance has just told him that she's pregnant. You think, well, did you guys mess up? And he says, no, no. It gets worse. He says, it's not by me. And you say, man, I'm really, really sorry. And he says, no, no, it's worse. She says, it's God. Okay. And you spray coffee all over the place. <laughs> See, this is the story that I'm asking you to believe that God is inviting you to believe today, to believe the unbelievable, humanly speaking. See, today's story requires real faith because God is required in this story. This is not humanly possible. Only God can do this. Only he can do what we're about to read about. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until he had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. In one sense, this is the Christmas story. But perhaps in another sense, it's really not a Christmas story. It's more of what you might call an Annunciation story. Okay? The Annunciation is a different church holiday. We don't commemorate it in our church, but many churches do. It's the celebration of the announcement of the angel to Mary of her conception. It happens about nine months before Christmas, back in late March or early April. The focus in our story, really, the action in our story focuses mainly on the conception, not primarily on the birth at this point. And this Annunciation story unfolds in Matthew through three main actors. And I want to introduce you to them and help you think with me about them this morning one by one. The first of those is the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, he shows up right away. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. He pops up again in verse 20. As Joseph considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. You can't miss it. Okay? The Bible says that this child comes from God. Jesus, as we saw in the lengthy twists and turns of that genealogy last week, he comes into the world by the sovereign work of God. He has been arranging things to enter our, for Christ to enter our world. Dale Bruner writes, The Holy Spirit has two major works in Scripture. First, to bring Christ down to earth and make him real and human to us, as in his birth. And second, to lift him up as our divine Lord, as in the resurrection. God's hand in all of this is made explicit to us in the virgin birth. Okay? Jesus had no biological earthly father. It's unmistakable that that's what the scriptures are saying. By means of a terribly mysterious miracle... Jesus is born to a virgin. It's stated repeatedly in our story. Now, I remember growing up, uh, one, of my, my, one of my very best friends, his dad, um, he couldn't believe this. He refused, he refused to believe the virgin birth. It was too much for him to believe. But, but think about it with me just for a second. Um, it's possible today, in our day, for a woman to conceive a child by a variety of means, courtesy of the laboratory, that do not involve direct sexual relations with a man. Okay? There's a variety of ways to do that. Um, it can happen. Now, you might be thinking, well, is she still a virgin Look, I don't know. Ask Mark Lederbach, okay? I have, I have no idea. Um, but look, look, if we can do this in such a clumsy, cold, clinical way, isn't it possible that God, through the Holy Spirit, the maker of life, the author of life, could do this in a much more mysterious way without the laboratory? Is that not possible with God? In doing this, as Bruner points out, the Holy Spirit is bringing about a very literal fulfillment of an ancient prophecy we touched on last week. Um, it's given to King David in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 14. Speaking to David, um, the prophecy goes like this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David, 
I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So there is a coming son of David who is to be a son of David, right? But in just two verses later, he says, I, God says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Okay? So he is both son of David and son of God. And that's precisely what happens through Joseph's adoption of this little one, which makes him a son of David, according to the genealogy, and the this miraculous conception by the Spirit, which literally makes him a son of God. He is quite literally God incarnate, we say. The hymns say that to us sometimes, the carols. God incarnate. God in the flesh by means of this spirit-wrought conception. And the ancient creeds of Christianity have always said it this way. Um, the Nicene Creed, written as long ago as 325. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate, by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. This is what Christians believe, that the Holy Spirit enters our story and brings Christ to us. He, as the author of life, he gives him life on this earth. He is then as the ancients used to say, he's very God and very man, simultaneously. The Holy Spirit does this through this miracle that we call the virgin birth, the virgin conception. So the Holy Spirit is the first actor in our story. The second actor in the story, which is a very true story, by the way, Matthew tells us to us as history, is the Christ himself, the Messiah himself. And we are introduced to him through two names. The first of those names is the one that we are most familiar with. It's the name Jesus. Verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the New Testament rendering of the Old Testament name Joshua, which, which has the meaning God saves. God saves. And this name is who Jesus is and what he does. First of all, he is God. Jesus is God, as we've seen, by means of the incarnation. He is God come to earth as a man, in the form of a man. This is who Jesus is. He is God come to save us. And it's not just that God saves us, that God saves us through Jesus, but Jesus, who is God amongst us, saves us. Do you see the difference? God is, Jesus is not just God's agent through whom God works. He is God who is saving us. That's what the name Jesus carries to us. It is what he does. It's who he is and it's what he does. He, he saves us. It's us that he saves. Jews and Gentiles, Israel and the nations, you and me. Whenever you read about the Gentiles, for almost all of us, that's us. Okay? It's not just these unreached peoples in distant lands. That's us too. Okay? We share in these promises and these hopes. And these Gentiles keep cropping up in the genealogies of, in the genealogy of the Jewish Messiah we saw last week. Jesus is the Savior of men of every stripe. Revelation 
tries to say it this way, every tribe, tongue, and nation he will save. Anyone who is saved is saved by Jesus. There's no other way. Our only hope of rescue, our sole hope of rescue from our sins to be restored to God is this Jesus. Now, it's very important this morning that you do some self-evaluation at this point. Is that your sole hope when you stand before God one day? There's a, there's a question um, a lot of us have been, have been encouraged to ask. It's an old one. It, it goes like this. It envisions a scenario where we will one day stand before God and God asks us a question. It's a hypothetical question, but it's an important one. Um, why should I let you into my heaven? How do you answer that? Why should I let you into my heaven? How would you answer that? Anything other, any other name you had mentioned than Jesus, would there be any first person pronoun in your answer? What I have done? You know, our works can be presented only as evidence of God's work, not as the basis for our salvation. Our only hope is Jesus. Our only hope is His work on the cross for us. Is that your sole hope? Is that the only name, the only work you'll mention on that day? It's a really important question. He saves us. He is the God who saves us from our sins. From our sins. He doesn't save us from our enemies. He doesn't save us from other people's sins. He saves us from our sins. Again, listen to Dale Bruner. He says, Jesus will not rivet his people's attention on an external enemy as most liberators and liberation movements do. He will not forge a burning hatred by which to ignite a revolutionary movement to action as most revolutionaries do. Rather, Jesus concentrates his fire on his people, his church, and on our sins. See, According to God, my big problem is my sin, not your sin against me. That's not my biggest problem. My biggest problem is my sin, not someone else's, even when they do it against me. Matt Woodley writes about a friend of his. His name is Doug And Doug is a Catholic priest who regularly hears confession from people. If you're from that faith, you're familiar with what what I'm talking about. He says um, he regularly hears confessions that go they go something like this: "Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. My last confession was nearly a year ago. I've done a few bad things, but hey, it isn't like I committed murder or robbed the bank." I suppose I did scream at my brother-in-law during our Thanksgiving dinner, and I said some pretty nasty things, but that was six months ago, and I've gotten over it. Besides, you should have heard what he said to me. That guy is such a jerk. That's confession that Doug hears. This is what Doug, Doug tries to remind them that Jesus came first and foremost to save us from our sins, not his sins, or her sins, or their sins. So Doug reminds his parishioners, if you can't admit your sins, if you must constantly blame others, then Jesus has nothing to offer you. See, until you admit that it's your own sin. That is your biggest problem, bigger than all the wrongs done against you, until you stop blaming and excusing and end arounding and 
you really cannot see that you need a Savior. I'm curious. Could you be described as someone who regularly blames others and does not take um, quick responsibility for your own shortcomings, your own sins? See, that can be an indicator of how well you get the gospel. Because it shows how well you understand that you need the gospel. Do you really believe that you need a Savior and that you need Him desperately and that you have no leg to stand on before God? Would that describe you? See, if you doubt that, then that should raise doubts about your standing with God. It's that serious. But if you would say yes to that, then this could be your day. This could be the day that Jesus, the God who saves us from our sins, will rescue you from the hellish burden of taking responsibility for your own sin. This really can be your day if you will own your sin and not excuse your sin or ignore your sin and you'll run to the God who saves, who is Jesus. That's what, that's what his name means. That's who he is. That's what he does. And the Apostle Paul wrote about how he does this, how he rescues us. In Colossians, later in the New Testament, he says, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself. So through Jesus, to reconcile to God all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. As God, Paul is saying that Jesus is God here. One of the clearest statements you'll find of that. As God, Jesus is reconciling us to himself. How? By the blood of the cross. That that is his great reconciling work. That's what it costs to rescue us. That's how he did it. Jesus is not just God's agent of rescue. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. He is the God who rescues, and He is with us. That's the, that's the second name that we're introduced to Jesus by in this passage in verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. All this took place, he says. The, the 14 by 14 by 14 genealogy took place. The angelic pronouncement took place. The Holy Spirit given conception. All of it took place so that the prophet Isaiah's words from 700 years before could be fulfilled when he says, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. You will call him Emmanuel. God with us. Some, some people render it this way, the with us God. It doesn't just mean that he's for us. He's on the sideline cheering for us. He's on our team. It means he came and walked among us on this dirty little planet where we live. The implication again is Jesus is that God. Okay? He wasn't just sent by God. He actually is God who is with us, who's among us. Listen really closely to this because this is, this is pretty precise and I want you to think about it with me. So 
if the guy next to you has got that glassy look, just poke him. Listen closely because this centers around a couple little teeny words. Um, Dale Bruner says, everything depends in the last analysis on whether one prefers the little word in or is when relating God to Jesus. Both are true, he says. God was in Jesus and God is Jesus. But the first in is subordinate to the second is. The in serves the is and it is the is that saves. Jesus is God. God is Jesus. Emmanuel teaches us that Jesus is the God who is with us. This is one of the things that separates us from the Muslims. They have a very different understanding. And uh, I'm I'm quoting a good bit today. Here's why I use quotes in my sermon. Because other people say things better than I can. Um, they're better writers and better thinkers, so I quote them. And I'm, I'm working with two guys who happen to be really good thinkers and really good writers, Matt Woodley and Dale Bruner. So I'm going to quote from them a, bit, a good bit today. This one in particular I thought was outstanding. Again, poke the guy next to you. Listen really close to this. This is, this is fascinating. Dale Bruner says, In the Old Testament, God was supremely the above-us God. The above-us God. Though occasionally, he writes, or often he says he would visit us here below, most prominently in the angel of the Lord, like in the book of Genesis. In Islam, Allah is by definition always the God above us, the above us God. However, the glory of the New Testament revelation is that the the great above us God came down and became one of us. In Islam, Allah sends. He sends angels, he sends prophets, he sends books. But he is too holy to come. For God to touch the earth is, in Islam, called shirk. And anyone who claims that God has a son or became a human being or anything like a human being commits shirk. They make God gross. They blaspheme God's glory. But, he says, in the gospel, we have learned to think of God in another way. The gospel's God is precisely so great that he can come down. He is not trapped in heaven above us. And this God's love is so immense that he wants to come down. He has proven his love by the fact that he did come down and touch our ground. Indeed, he even allowed himself to be shirked by men, condemned and nailed to wood. The greatness of the gospel's God is that God not only sends, he comes. Christmas is the story of God becoming one of us. Christmas is God's own self-shirking. And we believe, unlike our Muslim friends, we believe that in Jesus, God was with us here. As as J.B. Phillips put it in his delightful short story, we believe this is the visited planet. God came here as Emmanuel. He was with us. He became one of us. And the writer of Hebrews draws out just one of the many, many significances that Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. In chapter 10 of Hebrews, it says, The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. And that was entirely the wrong uh, passage out of Hebrews chapter 10. This is what I really wanted out of Hebrews chapter 10. We do not have a high priest 
who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Damien Speckerate writes this. He says, When I was in high school, my father passed away rather suddenly. It was just two days before my high school graduation. At that time in my life, he says, I was a baby Christian, immature and shallow. I was still drying off the baptistry waters. All I cared about was not going to hell. But then my dad died. And I found myself in a place I'd never been before. I wanted to hear God speak. I wanted to know what he had to say about this situation, how he was going to get me and my family through this difficult time. So I prayed, and I waited for God to speak. Then came the day of the funeral. The church was packed. I sat on the front pew with my mother and two younger sisters, and the Lutheran priest spoke, but I don't remember what he said. I continued to wait for God to say something, and then the service was over. It was a tradition of this church to have the family line up in the foyer, and everyone would file past us and offer words of condolence and encouragement. Tears were shed, hugs offered, and words were given. I don't remember what anybody said to me in that time, but I continued to wait for God to speak to me. Says then I saw Kim O'Quinn. She was my age. We were in the youth group together. When she got to me, she didn't say a word. She had tears in her eyes, and she simply hugged me and walked off. But I heard God speak, he says. It dawned on me. And months before, I had attended another funeral. The funeral for Kim O'Quinn's father. In that moment, she knew exactly what it meant to be me. If you want to hear God's voice in your life, he says, look no further than the one who knows exactly what it's like to be you. He knows what it is to be human. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be rejected. He knows. He knows what it is to be you. Emmanuel, God is with us in our sufferings to this day. Jesus himself said, I am surely with you always, even to the end of the age, to the very end. Of the age. It is our great hope and our comfort. God is with us. It does raise questions, though, uh, important and difficult questions. This idea of God incarnate, God with us. How is it that Jesus can be God here and yet God can still be on his throne in heaven? How can that be? And the answer to that is is the doctrine of the Trinity. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how the Athanasian Creed from long ago puts it this way. Just as we are compelled by Christian truth to acknowledge each person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, by himself to be God and Lord, so we are forbidden by the Christian religion to say that three are three gods or three lords. So we acknowledge one God in three persons, the blessed Trinity, as the song goes. Three distinct persons, all possessing all the attributes of God. As Paul said, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. It's a deep mystery to be sure, but it is the answer to our question of how. How can this be? Because God is three in one. Our story has one more actor, and his name is Joseph. And Joseph never speaks. He doesn't have a line in the story. 
Not that's recorded verbatim anyway. And amidst the glimpses we have of his life in these early chapters of Matthew and Luke, he has four dreams given to him by God. One of them is in our passage. And every single time he responds as he does in this passage. Every single time. It's interesting, for 400 years when Joseph was living, for 400 years before, there is absolutely no, zero, nada, communication from God to his people recorded. None. And so now, an angel appears to a carpenter in an obscure little village in a dream and tells him that his fiancée, who has been out of town visiting family, is now pregnant, and the Holy Spirit is the Father. Right. And on top of that, He is the Messiah who will save His people from their sins. Right. What would you do? What would you do? Would you be like Scrooge and Dickens' uh, Christmas Carol? Would you try to pretend like it wasn't happening? Would you try to ignore it? Would you see a shrink? Would you get some meds? What Joseph did is incredible. Because when Joseph woke from sleep, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until he had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. As soon as he wakes up, he does exactly what the angel commanded. And it wasn't an easy obedience, it would sully his reputation. It would cause him to forego the pleasures of the honeymoon. It's a serious obedience, guys. But by his obedience, the prophecies of Jesus as David's son would be fulfilled. Go back and read the last part of the genealogy. It comes through Joseph, son of Jacob. What would you do if you heard from God about reordering your life somehow? What what if you heard from Him this morning in this room? Not from an angel in a dream, perhaps. Those, some of you are dozing. It could happen. <laughs> okay, it's possible. Uh, let's get more, more mysterious. What if it happened through a pastor? What if God spoke to you and you became increasingly aware that God, God was asking something of you? He's asking you to serve. He's asking you to give. He's asking you to speak. He's asking you to repent and to change. What would you do? What have you done? Remember Moses' words of encouragement. We're looking at the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 30. This commandment that I command you Today, it's not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart so that you can do it. That's 
That's how Joseph thought about what God was saying to him. James in the New Testament says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Is there, is there one thing that God wants you to do? To do. To leave this room and do. You may have known it for a long time and been procrastinating. Or it may have come to you even as I was speaking. Is there one thing that God wants you to do? You may not have had an angel come to you in a dream, but everyone, virtually everyone who follows Christ has had the experience of looking into the mirror of the Scriptures, possibly in this very room, and seeing ourselves in that mirror and knowing what God wants us to do, and then getting up and walking out of this room and not doing it. This is a very dangerous thing. Listen to James again. He says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, For him it is sin. What's the one thing that God wants you to do? Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. This week. Even this day. Do what it says. This is the kind of prompt, full obedience that Mark Joseph at every turn in the page of his story. He was was obedient. He was an obedient man, and, and it was a loving obedience. You see this in his concern for Mary. The Old Testament um, regulations concerning unfaithfulness during the betrothal period and and then in, into the actual marriage were not particularly merciful. Again, in Deuteronomy, in that legal section in the middle, in Deuteronomy 22, it says, if, if this, the thing is true, the accusation of unfaithfulness in these matters, that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Joseph desired, according to Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, her husband Joseph was a just man and unwilling to put Mary to shame, let alone the possibility of capital punishment for such a thing. He didn't want to shame her, didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. He was concerned for her reputation above his own. See, he, he was willing to break with tradition and bring Mary into his home prior to the completion of the engagement period. Typically, as I understand it, they would become betrothed and there'd be a year-long period during which the woman's purity could be established, obviously, and then after the year, he would bring her into his home and consummate the relationship. Well, he brings her in before that. And you can imagine the talk in a small town about what had gone on. Joseph appears to us as a caring husband who puts his wife's interests above his own, which presses every husband in the room with this question, which is more important to you, men, your reputation or your wife's? You ever make little cracks at your wife's expense just to get a laugh? Or maybe it'll look good. You ever embarrass her? Just for a laugh? 
or just to divert the attention away from your screw-up? You ever blame her for something that you had your hand in? See, this, this pattern, these things, they were far from Joseph. He took a very public hit to his reputation to protect his bride, his fiancée. He loved her unselfishly. And so, in this familiar story, comes to us by the Holy Spirit. We learn that by the Spirit and by this obedient, loving servant, God comes to us as the God who saves and the God who is with us this Christmas. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, I want to pray for everyone in this room who needs to know that you have sent Jesus to be the God who saves us. They've been around the church, they've been around the Bible, they've been around Christian folk, but they've never said yes, they need a Savior to rescue them from their main problem, which is their own sin. And God, as they acknowledge that right now, pray that you would be faithful and delight in it and grant them faith in your son Jesus to be that Savior. Lord, make this their day where they are restored to a right relationship with you. And Lord, there's another bunch of us in this room and we need, we need to believe in Emmanuel that you are with us, that you will never fail us nor forsake us, that your presence here and that your son assures your understanding of all of our suffering, and there's some great suffering in this room. Lord, I pray that they would trust that they will never suffer alone as they run to you, the God who is with us, who became incarnate and walked among us. It's him we worship. We do this with our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.